Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we're continuing here with our look at H.H. Holmes, the man who's often referred to as America's first serial killer and one of our most requested topics. Now, Holmes became famous for the crimes he committed in Chicago at the end of the 19th century, around the time of the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. But where we are in the story, we don't know him as a notorious serial killer yet. From what we learned in part one of this podcast, he's just a really shady guy. Really shady. Yeah, a con artist, a criminal for sure. We know he's committed insurance fraud with the help of stolen cadavers, and he's been associated with at least one strange disappearance, that of Mrs. Holton, the woman he bought his first Chicago drugstore from. And we should also mention that he's also a deadbeat husband slash dad. He left his first wife and child and is basically estranged from his second wife, Murda, and their daughter together. Where we left off, though, he has, however, constructed this very unusual building with gas jets and trapdoors and hidden passageways, among other things. And he's done so in a secretive manner so that nobody knows the full extent of how creepy this building really is. On the surface, of course, it's just a structure to house his businesses, and it's a business itself as well. It's a hotel for the World's Fair crowd. But the building's odd and rather creepy features, in an understatement, hint at an underlying purpose that's a lot more sinister. So when we left off with our story, a man named Jonathan Belknap was just getting a sense of that underlying creepiness of this hotel slash block of buildings. So Belknap was Holmes's second wife, Murda's uncle, and Holmes had recently taken a loan from him and then forged his signature on another note to get more money. Holmes then invited Belknap to tour his new building and against Belknap's better judgment convinced him to stay the night. We After remember, that creepy feeling up on the roof. Yes. Well, he tried avoiding to get him, going up on he, the roof. Holmes had tried to get him to go on the roof and he had a bad feeling about it and didn't do it. And he had a bad feeling about spending the night too, but he did it anyway. So this is where we're going to pick up with our story. So Belknap carefully locked the door before he went to bed that night. He later recalled initially thinking that he and Holmes were the only two people in the building at that time. A block of buildings, which is already kind of a disturbing feeling. Something like almost 100 rooms. So just imagine that. Belknap goes to bed, but he can't sleep. He lies awake listening to the sounds outside, like the occasional horse going by, trains. And then after a few hours he hears something more alarming. Someone is trying his door, and then they slip a key into the lock. So at that point, Belknap calls out, and the sound stops. Then a couple minutes later, he heard someone walking down the hall. And this is the first time that makes him feel like there may have been two people at the door, not just Holmes in the building. So he said something again to that person who was maybe still there. This time, somebody answered him, and Belknap later said it was Patrick Quinlan, Holmes's trusted caretaker, who we mentioned in the first part of the podcast. And Quinlan said that he wanted to come into the room, but Belknap wouldn't answer the door, wouldn't let him in. And eventually, Quinlan went away. But Belknap, as you can imagine, still didn't get any sleep that night after this bizarre interlude in the early hours of the morning, lay awake thinking about it. 
Right. So not long after this incident, Belknap discovers that Holmes had forged his signature. Holmes apologizes profusely and somehow manages to talk Belknap down. So Belknap never presses charges or reports the incident or anything that happened that night that he spent the night in the building. According to Eric Larson's book, though, which recounts these events in detail, Belknap later said that he realized why Holmes had wanted him to go on the roof of his building so badly that day. Belknap said, quote, if I'd gone, the forgery probably wouldn't have been discovered because I wouldn't have been around to discover it. Uh-oh. So his hesitation about going up there on the roof was justified, and it kind of makes you think that he should have resisted spending the night, too, even though he ultimately got lucky, he had locked his door, he was awake when he heard the key rattling around. And that's kind of why we wanted to bring up this incident in the first place, even though it's not one of the most significant or gruesome of Holmes's story. It illustrates what happened to a lot of people who encountered Holmes, even though they weren't as lucky as Belknap. Several people may have had a funny feeling about him, a funny feeling about Holmes or his strange, creepy building, but they sort of went along with whatever was going on because they didn't want to be rude. And that was exactly what happened with Belknap. He didn't want to offend his niece or her husband. And Sarah, you and I have talked about this a lot since we started researching this topic. I mean, think about trust your instincts. I mean, a lot of us don't. We're so worried about being polite all the time that we ignore some of those creepy feelings that we have now and again. Which occasionally turn out to be justified. Another thing, though, a lot of people who did experience something strange or had doubts about homes in his building didn't report their concerns to the authorities. So maybe that's another lesson out of this. Go ahead and, and let somebody know if, if there's a strange situation going on. He even at one point had a large rectangular kiln built in the basement. Nobody thought anything of of, uh, reporting that. Yeah, and when the person who had built the kiln for Holmes came by, he was just sort of like, oh, you know, yeah, this is a kiln and I can make it work better for you. (laughs) Yeah, but didn't realize until later what it would be used for. You opening a pottery studio or something, Holmes? Exactly. Well, I think it was because Holmes had supposedly opened a glass business because so much glass was needed at the time with all the construction going on for the World's Fair. And so he sort of indicated that he would need this kiln to create the glass that he was making, but it was entirely the wrong shape. I mean, it was this long rectangular kiln. More body size than glass size. More suited to something else, to burning up something else rather than glass. But there's a that's a big part of why Holmes was able to do what he did for so long and not get caught. But we should address that question a little bit before we go further. I think, what exactly was he doing? We need to talk about how exactly he put the strange building and all these strange things inside at the kiln and the vault. We've put enough hints out there already. Yep. So one of Holmes's primary agendas seemed to involve his employees. And as we mentioned, he had several businesses in the building, including a drugstore and a barber shop and a restaurant. And of course, all those businesses, he needed help to keep them all running. Even early on, though, people noticed that Holmes's employees didn't really stick around very long. He had a high turnover. And he also had this habit of hiring young, attractive girls, often naive girls from small towns. He'd encourage them to bring all their money with them. 
and rent accommodations conveniently in his building right where they're working. And he'd also have them take out life insurance policies, naming him as the beneficiary. I mean, I think that's the strangest thing. That's not usually how employer-employee relationships work. But these girls would work for homes for a little while, and then suddenly they would just disappear, vanish off the earth, often leaving their belongings in the rooms upstairs. Unfortunately, the individual stories of all of these employees aren't necessarily known. A lot of them really didn't know anybody when they came to Chicago. They were sort of anonymous, and then they were never found later. But there are a couple of stories that stand out from the rest that we want to go into. One involves a man named Ned Connor. Connor was a jeweler who moved to Chicago at the end of 1890, beginning of 1891, somewhere in there. And he started managing the jewelry counter in Holmes Drugstore. He, his wife Julia, and their eight-year-old daughter Pearl also rented an apartment above the store, and Julia also ended up getting a job as a clerk in the drugstore. So at first, Ned really admired his young, handsome, wealthy employer, looked up to him, in fact, and a lot of people in the neighborhood did. So he wasn't alone in that respect. But soon he started to feel a little bit uncomfortable with how attentive Holmes was toward his wife. Julia was very pretty and very tall. She was six feet tall, in fact, and she liked this attention from Holmes. Soon Ned began to notice that customers kind of looked at him with pity. And some people, his friends, even told him that something was going on with Holmes and his wife. And then one day, Holmes made him an offer. He offered to sell Ned the pharmacy and set up a super easy payment plan for him, offered to handle all the legal stuff involved with transferring ownership. And Ned didn't think twice, it seems, about why Holmes would want to sell him the business, especially if he was potentially carrying on with his wife during this. He just yeah, thought, and the business was doing fine. I mean, it's he he didn't have any suspicions there. He just thought that owning the business might help elevate him in his wife's eyes, but it didn't work at all because meanwhile Holmes was also encouraging Ned to buy life insurance, telling him that once he and Julia were on good terms again, he'd want to protect his family. Ned. Refused Refused that aspect of the deal, but not long after he took ownership of the pharmacy from Holmes, creditors started showing up, and apparently the previous owner, H. H. Holmes, of course, had bought everything in the store, the furniture, even the stock, on credit, and hadn't repaid a dime. So the new owner, Ned, was stuck with all of this debt, and the only thing he could do is commit to repaying them as soon as possible. So instead of a new drugstore to impress Julia with, he has this dead weight around his his ankle. So think about if this happened to you. I mean, you would imagine Ned to go up to Holmes and be really angry and get in a fight. Yeah, so he approaches Holmes, but Holmes just acts really sympathetic and gives Ned some sort of, you know, hey, all businesses have debts and I'm sure you knew this when you went into business. Trying to you say nothing was, was out of line with the deal they right. made. Thinking that, saying, trying to imply that nothing was unusual. But of course, he didn't offer to help him at all either. So things continued to get worse between Julia and Ned. And Ned started to 
kind of finally believe these rumors about Holmes and Julia. He ultimately left Julia and Pearl and abandoned his interest in the store. And Ned eventually divorced Julia, but he couldn't get custody of Pearl, even though he wanted to he wanted to go get her and, and bring her to live with him. Of course, this left Holmes with Julia and Pearl. And Julia didn't seem quite as attractive to him anymore for some reason. And then to make matters worse, in late 1891, Julia told Holmes that she was pregnant. And so, obviously, she expected him to marry her. So, according to Larson's book, Holmes calmly agreed to marry her. Apparently, he'd been promising that for some time, but said that before he did that, she'd have to have an abortion, which he would handle since, of course, he was a doctor and everything. He said he'd use chloroform. She wouldn't feel anything. So, Julia agreed. She had no choice. She wanted to get married. She didn't want to be an unmarried pregnant woman in the late 1800s. So a friend, another tenant in the building, last saw Julia that Christmas Eve and even made plans with her to see Julia and Pearl the next day. But neither of them were ever seen again after that. Holmes told people that they'd gone to visit family in Iowa. And then just after Christmas, Holmes employed the services of a man named Charles M. Chapel, who had a very special skill and one that implicates Holmes quite a bit in this case. Yes, Holmes paid Chapel $36 to strip the flesh from a dead woman's body and then reassemble the skeleton. Chapel recalled later that the face of the body was unidentifiable. The face had been disfigured, but the body was unusually tall for a woman, so that kind of suggests that it might have been Julia. Chapel, like Peitzel and Quinlan, actually ended up becoming one of Holmes' trusted accomplices, although it appears as if Chapel really didn't suspect murder. He may have not really known what was going on. After all, Holmes was a doctor, and this could have just been the body of one of his patients who died. Of course, that sounds a little naive to most of us, but I guess there maybe was no way to prove that he knew for sure that it was murder. Holmes, of course, had called Chapel in in order to make some more money, too. He ended up selling that skeleton to Hahnemann Medical College in Chicago. And we've mentioned before how U.S. medical schools in the 1800s, well, actually, we've talked about Burke and Hare, too. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) medical schools around the world were really desperate for bodies, even in skeleton form, to use in instruction. So some doctors and students were even robbing graves at this point to fulfill that need, satisfy that need. And Holmes knew this and obviously used it as an opportunity to make some good money off of off of these murders. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's not the only time that Holmes used this strategy. Uh, another woman who ended up working for Holmes in 1892 was a beautiful young blonde woman named Emmeline Sigrand. He sought her out to and offered her a job because he'd heard of her beauty from Peitzel, who'd come across her while she was working at a facility where he was in rehab. Holmes offered Emmeline twice her previous salary to work for him, and she accepted. He started wooing her right away, using all of his usual charm that seemed to always work on the ladies, his attentiveness, that touch that we mentioned that was so taboo, but at the same time comforting 
So she fell in love with him, and they would ride bikes together all over the neighborhood. Which I think, if I remember from that book, was a cool new pastime. It was a very trendy thing to be doing. Yep, and Holmes got really into buying bicycles, I guess. But eventually, she took an apartment in his building, too. She bought his whole facade. He even embellished his personal story and told her that he was the son of an English lord, but told her, you know, don't tell anyone. This is secret. I I don't want it to get out because I don't want anyone to know. Like, he just didn't want to brag or something. So this just made him seem all the more romantic. She was head over heels for him. But when a couple of her cousins came to visit, they weren't so taken by the whole situation. They didn't actually meet Holmes, but they found his building to be really creepy and gloomy, much like Belknap did. They didn't share their feelings about it, though, because they didn't want to hurt Emmeline's feelings. So later that year, Emmeline and Holmes became engaged. But by December 1892, she suddenly disappeared. Much like Julia's situation, a friend in the building started asking Holmes about Emmeline. Where is she? What happened to her? And he said that she'd left to go marry a man named Robert E. Phelps. He even produced a typed-up wedding announcement, typed-up but very plain-looking wedding announcement that apparently some members of her family received as well. He had several that she had supposedly dropped off for tenants in the building that he handed out, and then some of her family members got one in the mail. Well, and no surprise here, but Emmeline had never mentioned Phelps to her friends in the building or to her family, so people didn't quite buy this wedding announcement thing. They kept on inquiring about her. Her hometown newspaper found out about the wedding and um, printed that now very eerie-sounding announcement, which said that the bride, quote, after completing her education, went to Chicago, where she met her fate. Not the most romantic-sounding announcement. No, and I mean, by fate, they were obviously referring to marriage in kind of an oblique way. (laughs) But uh, now that we know that her fate was very different. It's a bit darker than that. It's a bit darker. So Emmeline's friend in the building recalled seeing a large trunk brought downstairs soon after Emmeline disappeared. She later said that she felt like Holmes had killed Emmeline, but she never went to the police and remained living in the building. So again, another case of that somebody has a suspicion, but they not only don't speak up about it, but they don't get out of there for themselves. Yeah, don't take actions to protect yourself. So Holmes also employed the services of Chapel again around that time and sold the skeleton to LaSalle Medical College a few weeks later. After Emmeline, Holmes moved on to a woman named Minnie Williams, who he'd courted previously long distance while she was finishing school in Boston and he was in Chicago. She wasn't attractive like most of the girls that Holmes got involved with, but she did have other virtues. Specifically, she was an heiress to a Texas real estate fortune. So Minnie happened to move to Chicago in February of 1893, pretty much following Holmes. She hadn't heard from him in a while, but she was still really in love with him. She knew him by a different alias, though, Henry H. Gordon, and she called him Harry. So when Holmes found out that Minnie was in town, he immediately called on her and started things up again. He asked her to come work for him so they could see each other whenever they wanted. But he specifically asked that she call him Henry Howard Holmes when they were in public because, you know, he adopted that name for business purposes and didn't want her coming in and making anybody suspicious or wonder who he really was. So during their courtship, he also convinced her to sign over the deed to her Texas property, which was her vast heiress's inheritance, to someone named Alexander Bond, who then in turn 
signed over the deed to a Benton T. Lyman. Holmes convinced Minnie that it was a smart business transaction. You know, she'd make more money off of it. He would take care of everything, I'm sure. And what Minnie didn't know was that Bond, the original person she signed it over to, was another one of Holmes's aliases. And Lyman was an alias of that trustee assistant of Holmes, Ben Peitzel. So... Essentially, he had gotten her to give him her fortune, and he promised Minnie a wedding, and they ended up having a small one, just the two of them and a preacher, and she thought it was all legal, but there's no record today of their marriage. Minnie had been writing throughout this entire affair, though, to her sister Anna, just talking about how happy she was and how great Holmes was and how handsome and what a great businessman. And when the World's Fair got underway, Holmes invited Anna to visit and to come see the fair with them. She came, though she had reservations at first, but when she got there, she just got taken in by Holmes' charm like everyone else. And he promised to take both of the women to Europe. And Anna even sent for extra clothes and things from home in preparation for her long journey. So it seemed to people back home like she was really going to be taking off for a while. Yep. But both Anna and Minnie disappeared around that time in the summer of 1893. Soon after that, Holmes hired a man named Cephas Humphrey to pick up a large trunk and a box from his building. The box was long and had dimensions similar to a coffin, and Holmes had that sent to the train station where he'd prearranged to have it shipped somewhere, and the trunk was sent to chapel. Uh Uh-oh. So, of course... As we've mentioned, there were a lot of other people who were never seen again after staying in Holmes's building, and they weren't all his employees or all these would-be fiancés or wives. As planned, he had turned his building into a World's Fair hotel in 1893. Still, most of his guests were women, according to Larson's book, when men would come by to inquire about renting a room, the place would suddenly be mysteriously full. But when young women came by, there were always vacancies. The strange thing about Holmes, and I think maybe we were discussing this earlier, it's something that disturbs us, particularly about Holmes. He didn't usually kill people face to face, but he liked to be nearby so that he could hear what was going on as he killed them. Right. If he locked them in his airtight vault, for instance, he could just barely hear the sounds. I mean, remember, it was soundproof, but he could just barely hear someone crying or calling out for help. Often, though, he'd just turn on one of those gas valves and let someone die in their sleep in their room, or he'd sneak in and knock them out with chloroform. So, not surprisingly, his hotel often smelled of gas, or it smelled slightly medicinal. Something that would add to the overall creepy feeling people get when they visit this place. Yeah, especially if you're eating in the restaurant or something, but I guess maybe people chalked it up to him being a doctor. (laughs) Or there being the drugstore nearby or something. I'm not sure, although most drugstores don't smell like gas or medicine. Of course, though, with all of these people disappearing, at least some folks were coming and inquiring what happened to their kinfolk. Most of them were family members, including Emmeline's family, who thought that it was really strange she had never written them after her sudden marriage to this man they'd never heard of. Yeah, I think she used to write them very frequently. She was a good daughter and very close to her family. And she just went off the map. So they were afraid that she'd gone to Europe on a honeymoon after her wedding and had suddenly died there and that maybe her husband didn't know how to get in touch with them. So still not suspecting really foul play, just hoping that Holmes, as their last point of contact, would have some kind of information on their daughter. Yeah, although maybe they suspected more as time went by. The guardians of Minnie Williams were also suspicious, and they hired a lawyer to go look for her and protect her estate. 
So Holmes started to feel the pressure, started to feel the heat of all these inquiries and from creditors, too. It turned out that pretty much nothing he'd bought for that monstrous building was paid for. He had a way to weasel out of everything. I mean, just some examples. That airtight vault that he built when the company that installed it came to collect, he told them, sure, you can have this back. I mean, you know, if you say that you need it back, if I can't pay for it, but you'll have to pay for the damages caused to the building when you remove it. And the companies that had sold him furniture would come to uh, repossess their goods and he'd say, okay, go get it. And then they wouldn't be able to find it in his labyrinth of creepy rooms. He'd have it hidden somewhere. And uh, with all those secret staircases, good luck actually trying to find your stuff. Eventually, though, a lot of people, a lot of the creditors that Holmes owed money to got together and they hired a lawyer. He realized at that point that his days in Chicago were numbered. So he set the top floor of his building on fire, hoping to collect the insurance money. But the policy was in the name of one of his aliases, Hiram S. Campbell. And so when he filed the claim, an investigator got suspicious and started looking into it. So Holmes never really got to claim that money because if he had gone to claim it, this guy who was suspicious of him probably would have busted him. So instead, he fled to Fort Worth, Texas after that to take advantage of Minnie's land that he had had transferred to himself through that roundabout way. He took his new girlfriend with him, Georgiana Yoke, and he took his trusty assistant, Peitzel, too. But before leaving, he insured Peitzel's life for $10,000. So maybe the assistant should start worrying he will become a victim at this point. Holmes wasn't able to successfully get his hands on Minnie's estate, so they ended up moving on to St. Louis, where Holmes took over another drugstore. And, of course, he tried to pull one of his usual scams, stocking the store on credit and then trying to sell it and get the new owner to pay for the stock. But this time it didn't work. He was arrested for fraud, and he went to jail for a short time. Before he left jail, though, he confided in another criminal there, a train robber named Marion Hedgepeth. Holmes asked Hedgepeth for the name of a good attorney, one that, so in other words, a bad attorney, like someone he could trust with his shady dealings, and promised to pay Hedgepeth $500 for the information. The referral fee on this. Exactly. And he told Hedgepeth about his plans to fake his friend Peitzel's death and collect the 10000 in insurance money. So when Holmes got out, he and Peitzel proceeded with their plan, and Peitzel, under an alias, opened up his own business for buying and selling patents. And the two were planning on faking an accident and then using a disfigured cadaver to collect that life insurance money. Kind of a throwback from his college days. Yeah, pulling one of his old scams. So on September 4th, 1894, a customer came by Peitzel's business and found the door locked. And when he came back with the police later, they broke in and found a body that seemed to have gotten caught in an explosion inside. They determined that the body was B.F. Perry, which was Peitzel's alias, and that he had died of burns. So after the body went unclaimed for a little while and was buried, the Fidelity Mutual Life Association received a letter that said that Perry was actually Peitzel, who'd been insured by their company. And soon after, the lawyer Holmes had hired with Hedgepath's recommendation visited Philadelphia to try to get the claim. So the company paid Holmes, who kept all the money and didn't give any to Peitzel's widow or several children. 
And at first it seemed like he was going to get away with this, but he made a fatal mistake. He never did give Hedgepeth that $500 he'd promised him. So Hedgepeth got mad and ratted out Holmes to the insurance company. And after looking into it and finding evidence about all of the shady dealings that had really happened with the alias and all of that, Fidelity called in the Pinkerton Detective Agency, which we have done a podcast on them before. And the detective agency tracked down Holmes to Boston. He was arrested on November 17, 1894, and confessed to one count of insurance fraud. He pled guilty to that in the summer of 1895. There's another creepy catch with this story, though. The thing was, he kept on changing his own story so much about all other aspects of that crime, including what really happened to Peitzel, because, you know, everybody was assuming that he had faked, they'd been in this together and faked Peitzel's death. Peitzel wasn't anywhere to be found, though, and Holmes couldn't answer questions about that. So the authorities ended up exhuming the body they'd buried as Peitzel and performed an autopsy on it. They found that the body was not some kind of stand-in dead body. It was Peitzel himself, not a random cadaver, and that he'd been killed not in an explosion, but by chloroform. So now Holmes is facing a murder charge, and there was still a question of what happened to Peitzel's children, who Holmes had been traveling with for a while after the fraud. I mean, this kind of complicates the story a little bit, but sometime in between when he had pulled off this fraud with Peitzel, supposedly with Peitzel, but now we know it was sort of on Peitzel, he was traveling around with three of Peitzel's children. So... Holmes had told the authorities that Minnie Williams had taken the children to London. Our Texas heiress. Right. But a Philadelphia detective named Frank Geyer, he didn't buy this. He'd lost his own wife and children not long before, and so he was really motivated to find these kids. He launched this drawn-out investigation in which he traveled to all the cities that Holmes had been to recently, kind of tracking his mail path. And it took a couple of months, but he finally found these kids. Unfortunately, they weren't alive, though. He found the bodies of the two girls, Nellie and Alice, in Toronto, and he found the charred remains of Peitzel's son, Howard, in a kitchen stove in Indianapolis. The search for the kids is actually a really fascinating part of Holmes' story. I thought, I wish I, we could spend more time on it now in this story, but it's uh, Larson goes into it a lot in the book, so if you pick that up, you'll get to learn. He's better known for the murder it. castle in that phase of his career, but the, um, yeah, this hunt for the children was an interesting kind of conclusion to it all. It is. It just reveals more, I guess, about Holmes' character and how sinister he was when he was doing these awful crimes. And the fact that his serial killer profile just would change so dramatically, um, going from luring people in and and dispatching them in a um, very hands-off kind of way to murdering these kids for no reason, no money, very strange. Um, With Holmes suspected of quite a few murders by now, though, the Chicago police decided to search that abandoned castle in Inglewood. And what they found was, of course, horrifying human remains and stoves and fireplaces and chimneys throughout the building, Uh, a lot of horrible stuff in the basement. Yeah, bloody dissecting tables, surgical instruments, that kiln that we mentioned, which still contained bone fragments. They also find 
found quicklime pits beneath the floors, as well as a vat of corrosive acid and the bones of a small child, which might have been Pearl Connor. And the vault somehow had an impression of a woman's footprint on the inside of the door, which authorities believe to belong to Emmeline. So it's clear now why this is known as the murder castle. But they weren't able, the police weren't able to conduct a more thorough investigation because in August 1885, a mysterious fire destroyed the castle and the rest of the evidence inside. And that's partly why we'll never know exactly how many people Holmes killed. Some estimates put the numbers low, well, it's still a lot, but at 27, some put it at as high as 200 people. Holmes went on trial for Peitzel's murder in October 1895, and it was called one of the trials of the century, but it only lasted for about six days. The jury returned a verdict in a couple of hours, though, according to Jones' History Magazine article, which we mentioned in the previous podcast, the jurors said it really only took them a minute to make their decision, but they just stayed out longer for appearance's sake. Holmes was hanged May 7th, 1896, but not before he changed his story a number of times. I mean, he said that he didn't kill a lot of people, and then he said he killed people that they later went and found out were still alive, and it was very confusing. He just kept changing what had happened, and he wrote his memoir while he was imprisoned to get sympathy, and he also sold the rights to his final confession to William Randolph Hearst for $7,500, and in that confession, he said that he'd killed 27 people. Don't you wonder who ended up with that money eventually, too? I mean, he must have amassed quite a fortune with his That's all true. His scams and his uh, ability to never pay his tab anywhere, but... I don't know. Maybe some of you guys could let us know if you have an answer to that. Toward the end, though, Holmes wrote, quote, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer, no more than the poet can help the inspiration to song, nor the ambition of an intellectual man to be great. Another kind of interesting point, he was so afraid of people taking his body after he died. I mean, he had done so much to other people's bodies. He was so afraid of his own being taken and having stuff done to it. He had concrete poured into his coffin and also over his coffin in his grave so that people couldn't steal his body. And then, of course, with a story this chaotic, there's also a curse involved, a possible curse. We haven't had a curse since the Iceman. Actually, that's that's just been a a pretty short amount of time. Yeah, so lots of weird stuff happened to people involved with the case after Holmes' death. Geyer became ill. The jury foreman on his case was electrocuted. The priest who had given Holmes his last rites died suddenly, and an office of an insurance company that Holmes had cheated caught on fire. So the curse of H.H. Holmes, yeah, you guys decide what you think about that. It's certainly a scary story, though. These serial killer tales always creep me out a lot, but I know listeners do like them a lot. Listeners like them. It seems to be kind of split. I mean, we sort of did a little informal poll around the office here at How Stuff Works, and, you know, we found that some people are really into serial killer stories and really like researching them, and I think Sarah and I both fall in the opposite camp. We're not (laughs) as much uh, interested in serial killers, but, you know, it's always fun to research. It's an interesting story. It just makes me really uncomfortable. It's a fascinating story, yes. I think that's probably a good time for us to transition away from serial killers and into listener mail. 
So we're not going to transition too far after all, because our postcard that we're featuring today does still have a skeleton on it, although it's kind of in a campy, funny way. It's from Marie. She sent it as a holiday card. Um, and just to give you guys a description, it is a skeleton holding a crystal ball, and it says, Alexander, crystal seer, sees your life from the cradle to the grave. However, Marie has kindly painted over the grave scene in the the crystal ball and put a Christmas tree with a shining rhinestone on top. So, um, Holiday festive. Yeah, (laughs) cleaning things up a little bit. Uh, Thank you, Marie. And uh, if any of you guys want to send us an email, we have changed our address again. We're now at historypodcast at discovery.com. And that should make our mail delivery a little more reliable than it's been the past month Yeah, it's been kind of spotty in the last month. So if we haven't replied to you, that's why. But also maybe don't resend everything or we'll never be able to catch up. (laughs) That's true, too. (laughs) Um, Again, though, Facebook and Twitter at Missed in History are always great ways to reach us as well. And if you want to learn a little bit more about our somewhat scary topic today, we have an article called How Serial Killers Work. And you can find that by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.